Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Never sincerity on your part. Free and open and frank dialogue and what we will continue to have. We will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on. You will have to disagree Let's create the conditions first. So uh, the interpreters for President Xi of China and the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, in the encounter between uh, the President and the Prime Minister initiated by the President of China, challenging Mr. Trudeau for having released to the media the content of a conversation they'd had a couple of days before. And uh, yeah, Trudeau gave as good as he got and said, uh, we do things differently. And then Xi said, set the conditions first, turned his back and walked away. So my question becomes, when the president of China personally challenges the prime minister of Canada, what does that do to the relationship between the two countries, which is already strained? Does that open up the opportunity or create an opportunity for members of the Chinese embassy in Ottawa to be more aggressive than they've been already. Uh, Ambassador Kong was extremely aggressive toward this country. And now President Xi taking on the prime minister. So there's a lot of, there's a lot in play here. We had uh, the Meng Wanzhou case, of course, and the two Michaels imprisoned in China for an extremely long period of time. And nothing was done until Ms. Meng was allowed back to China. And then coincidentally, the two Michaels came back to Canada. There's the Huawei issue. We talked about that. The switches for... Um, the 5G network, the uh, Chinese government still upset with Canada for not using the switches. I'm glad we didn't. And now we have a Hydro-Quebec situation where an employee at Hydro-Quebec has been arrested on espionage charges. Not a good scene. Sam Cooper of Global News, national online journalist, investigative, and author of Willful Blindness, is an expert on, a true expert on this whole issue that surrounds China and Canada and I've said this many times, the best investigative journalist I know. How are you, Sam? I'm great, Roy. Great to talk to you today. Yeah, good to talk to you. So, so Xi confronts Trudeau. That's a control thing to me. If you start it, you want to control it. Is that what it was, or what was this about, and how do you assess how they both did? Well, uh, it's a, a great question. I think there's a couple things going on. First, uh, the, the background on this is that, of course, our global news uh, reports advanced understanding of the allegations that uh, CSIS has known for a long time that China has allegedly, allegedly been interfering deeply in our elections. Not only that vast interference in our society, but we revealed uh, this alleged covert funding scheme in the 2019 election involving at least 11 candidates. Prime Minister Trudeau was forced, really, to respond to uh, our report that 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 cited uh, my gathered intelligence that that showed memos were forwarded to Mr. Trudeau in early 2022, outlining these deep allegations. Mr. Trudeau had to respond and say some countries have been playing aggressive games, and then the G20 uh, days later. the uh, we hear we're 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 reported it's reported that Mr. Trudeau had a frank discussion about uh, interference, and of course Mr. G appeared to be angry that that information came out. It would seem to have come out from the prime minister's office or re- those types of staffers. Other commenters have said uh, sharp commenters in Ottawa. Well, it looks like this was uh, Prime Minister Trudeau appearing to, to look like he was talking tough when, when he hasn't done too much on foreign interference for a number of years. Yeah. And, and so Z sinologists, language experts tell us, not only did he, did he uh, chide our prime minister, but said, we don't know what can happen if you don't create those conditions for genuine exchange, which is a threat. That is a so threat. That is that. But, but, uh, you know, Roy, even before that, there was a great Wall Street Journal story on the Mun Wanzhou case that you talked about. In that story was a very interesting line. Uh, 
China doesn't see the prime minister as a head of state. So they, they even before this meeting on the sidelines, uh, they see Xi as the, the leader of the state and the prime minister as uh, under the queen or now the king of England. And they don't think it's appropriate for their head of state to be talking to our prime minister. So that tells you, I think, a lot about that exchange. Yeah, it sure does. And congratulations on the tremendous work you did to uncover the 2019 election story. That's amazing work. And Global News did force the prime minister to take at least some action, verbally at least, where there's been very little forthcoming or very little done to challenge what is a real concern. And then there's the 21 election. There's concerns about that as well. So... um, how much can you tell us? I mean, I, 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 the story that, uh, that ran the uh, day before yesterday on Global News, your story, Toronto businessman allegedly focus of Chinese interference probes. And then the, the, the Hydro-Quebec situation that developed this week as well. What, what's going on, Sam? I mean, is there, an or, is, there a, is there a concentrated campaign here to undermine the domestic uh, programs, the domestic security of this country? Um, by China, or am I just asking the obvious? I think you're, you're at, <laughs> at this point, you're starting to ask the obvious. I am. What, <laughs> what my investigations of these files uh, from that have come forward to me, by the way, because Canadian media has been lagging our peers in Australia in exposing these deep threats, what they outline, what I can tell you, Roy, is they outline a very deep, broad, sophisticated threat involving uh, the Chinese Communist Party's so-called United Front, which interferes in many democracies, but the experts say more in Canada than most because Canada has weak legal defenses against foreign interference. And this is a vast campaign. We're talking about uh, the surrounding, you know, full court press flooding the zone of operatives who uh, many political donors, political staffers around Canadian politicians at all levels, not just the, not just federally elected senators, uh, on down to school board officials. China uh, is, is running a very deep campaign. Uh, the, the industrial or scientific espionage you mentioned is only one aspect. This is a, an attack. Let's not mince words. It's an attack on many democratic institutions and most at risk, as the former ambassador David Mulroney said in our first story, is uh, the, the, the diaspora community themselves. These are people that uh, left East Asia in many cases to to live under freedom and democracy, and they're being spied on, harassed, forcibly repatriated to, to China if they are seen as enemies of uh, Xi Jinping's regime. Yeah, and we were talking about that the other day, or a couple of weeks ago, about China um, repatriating or, uh, or kidnapping uh, individuals. Kidnapping. They, want, they want back in China, and, uh, and actually using Interpol to their advantage to, to do all of these things. So we have then, Sam, the potential, maybe I'm stating the obvious again, we have the potential for up to a dozen members of parliament, could be conservative, could be liberal, could be any party, in office now, let me put this diplomatically, who are favored by China. Well, you, you put it exactly right, who are favored by China. This is the very key point. At least a dozen in 2019 were favored by China. There were efforts made uh, to run covert funds originating with, uh, with the regime and run through the hands of regime proxies into campaigns. But the key point here, we, uh, not all of those candidates likely would have even known that they were favored by China. Maybe, you know, they're politicians. They should be uh, pretty smart about, you know, where funds are coming from. But according to the intelligence I've seen, not all are witting. Some are alleged to be witting Chinese Communist Party affiliates. And so really, when people talk about my reports and say, who are the 11 candidates? First of all, it's likely more than 11 that are favored. It's likely more than uh, it's many more than 11 and 13 campaign staffers involved in these networks. There's many people involved in United Front Networks who seek to flood the zone and surround our current former politicians to influence Canada's policy. So I'm going to ask you a series of obvious questions here. So I I can hear people uh, listening to this program across Canada right now saying, so what are we doing? What are we doing? What's what's CSIS doing? What's the government doing? What's 
What's the the apparatus to keep Canada safe from intrusion doing? You know, when we hear that China has three police stations in southern Ontario, hello. Um, what are we doing, Sam? Well, uh, it's really a great question. I mean, you, it, it's the obvious question, but there's not an obvious answer because the public was in the dark. This is an important point. There's reporting up in Canada's parliament that has said Australian media carried the level of knowledge about interference to, the, to where it needed to be in 2017 2018, Australia put in new tough laws to counter modern foreign interference. But back in 2015, Australia was just as deeply vulnerable as Canada is. It took media and civil society to inform our uh, smart public about what the heck is really going on. So we're in, in some ways, I think we're on uh, week two of Canada's public for reasons of people that have grave concerns for our country's future, bringing information or pointing me to information and saying, we, we, we don't have the laws. You need to inform the public, Roy. And that's what I've done so far. And we'll keep, I'm, I'm still working this file. So I hope many of your questions I'll continue to answer. Sam Cooper is my guest, national online journalist, investigative with Global News and the author of Willful Blindness. That sounds like a, Good title for a book today, Sam. It, it is, and it makes sense because I really started my, my journey of reporting, as we've talked about before, looking into organized crime and casinos yeah. and underground banking uh, in Vancouver. And that's how I got into foreign interference. And I've, I've chased that trail to Ottawa where I'm on a new leg of that, that discovering of willful blindness, I believe. How much pushback are you getting? I'm starting to see the pushback online. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, we, I think we've talked before, there was pushback on the book. Uh, I was informed Chinese intelligence was doing research on, on myself. And I've already seen uh, in the days leading up to uh, some stories, and uh, there have been strange articles appearing on, uh, on Mandarin language media that... Uh, my sources would indicate uh, is connected to the Chinese Communist Party and a type of pushback or disinformation, which would be the very same networks. And it makes sense that targeted a uh, former MP Kenny Chu, who I believe, uh, you know, you're interested in and, and may have interviewed as well. So it's all about pushing back at critics from uh, a regime that wants the freedom to control uh, other democracies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mr. Chu was on with this last weekend. So China's objective then is to exercise as much control as it can over the affairs of this country. And maybe the most obvious one, how many times have I used that word this hour? Uh, the most obvious one is to influence elected officials at the federal, also provincial level, right? That's exactly correct. And it's, a, it's such a subtle form of influence that you don't see any any uh, MPs or MPPs walking into Parliament with a a red flag with yellow stars on it. Quite the opposite. But what the United Front in China tries to accomplish, the experts tell us, is to influence democracies without democracies even being aware. But we can see signs when uh, Can Canadian parliamentarians want to want to uh, vote on censuring China for genocide in Xinjiang, and we can see some politicians refraining from voting or some changing their votes or some outside of parliament saying such uh, votes would... Uh, would would uh, fan the flames of uh, racism or would be hypocritical because Canada doesn't have a perfect past. These are indications that China already has a, its hand in the throat of some parliamentarians, I believe. In fact, I know. I'm, I'm informed by sources. Say that again. I'm informed by sources that some votes in Parliament are under danger of being influenced. By China. by China. So when we see the overt signs of, uh, uh, as you, you talked about Huawei 5G, and it took a long time for parliamentarians to, uh, or the government to make a decision, not, you know, are we going to ban 5G because the United States says it has espionage risks? Uh, you could easily see that there can be pressure not to take action. We've just started our conversation with President Xi making a threat to our prime minister that essentially saying, you know, act, act well or else. or else. And that's what's happening to our parliamentarians in subtle ways. So Mr. Xi was actually then 
looking right past Mr. Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau's objections meant nothing to Mr. Xi because he knows where he is. He knows the level of influence his government and his apparatus has in Canada. So the prime minister is, what, an irritant? I think that's a, a perfect observation. As I said, the, they're in China's system, they don't even see the prime minister as a head of state. They see them as a, a functionary of the, the, the crown of England. In, so it, as ridiculous as that sounds to us Canadians, it's perfectly natural for presidency not to get the translation of what Prime Minister Trudeau said or to look, not even look him in the eyes and walk away. Hmm. Um, how have the Australians been able to, we have about a minute here, Sam, how have the Australians been able to re resolve or address the very situations they faced, which we're facing now, as you, as you and Global News have pointed out to the rest of us? The key step was uh, really a no-brainer, and it's not an easy fix. It, it takes some fortitude. It's a law which says that uh, if you, uh, who is you, it could be a former cabinet minister, high-level business person, academic, are working for a foreign country such as Iran, Russia, North Korea, or China, you're getting fees, but you don't disclose that, uh, working for them in Canada, lobbying, uh, you, uh, you would need to register that interest, and that would force people to be upfront and open. And what Australia has done, if you, if, you register, if you don't register and you're caught being an agent of a regime, you face jail. So that would be, uh, my, a lot of sources say that's the step Canada needs to take. Mm -hmm. United Kingdom has just taken it. Okay. Canada is left even more open to interference because okay. we don't have those laws. And that's what Kenny uh, Chu's uh, private member's bill was going to do, right? That's right. He was taking that first step of at least yeah. registering your interest. And he Didn't got have defeated. jail in there yet, but he had a good start. Okay, so I saw this a couple of days ago, and it's worrisome, extremely worrisome. A just-released five-year study in the United States, 2016 to 21, shows a steady increase in the number of children seen in emergency rooms for suicidal thoughts. It's called an unprecedented mental health crisis. Some of these kids are as young as five. How does a five-year-old child think about suicide? Why does a five-year-old child know about suicide? In Canada, suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people. 24% of deaths in the 15 to 24-year-olds due to suicide. Mark Hennick has been on this program a number of occasions with us on the issue of mental health, mental health strategist in Toronto, CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting, the author of So-Called Normal, also the name of Mark's podcast. And as you know by now, Mark had suicidal thoughts when he was, how old were you, Mark, 12? I would have been 12 years old when I was first diagnosed, yeah. Wow. And you attempted suicide at age 15, and you were told us you were saved by a stranger. And that TED Talk video where you revealed that has been watched millions of times around the world. That alone speaks volumes. Yeah, you know, I think the, when people open up about these kinds of vulnerabilities, uh, about even really scary things like a kid being suicidal, uh, it really touches a nerve with people. It really connects with people because it's something that so many of us have actually experienced. Yeah, so how does a five-year-old, and you've said to us before that, you know, preteens are prone, well, some, to having suicidal thoughts. How does a five-year-old even know about suicide? Yeah, there's a number of um, competing theories about why suicide happens or where it comes from. But one of the, the more prevalent ones seems to be uh, when somebody, uh, especially a kid who doesn't have a huge window of reference, right? They don't yet have a lot of life information, life experience to compare it against. Uh, but when they're experiencing some sort of either physical or psychological pain, uh, combined with this sense of hopelessness and helplessness, that there's nothing that they can do about it, that there's nothing they can do to change it, uh, and that it'll never get better. That's kind of a toxic mix that seems to be leading um, kids especially towards suicidal ideation and indeed attempts. Yeah. I remember speaking with the mom of a 17-year-old in Alberta, and her son had been uh, bullied in school and just been treated badly, and he became more and more and more de depressed and disturbed. And they tried to get him help, and, and then one day, 
if I remember this correctly, and she may be listening. Uh, one day, her son just seemed to be very calm and very within himself. The next day, he took his own life. That, to me, is that's a story I've never forgotten. And when we when we see 24%, I'm sorry, you were going to say something there. No, I was saying that this is actually a, a not at all uncommon uh, progression, and it seems to be uh, that people are almost grieving their own death before they die. That they certain they come to a certain place where uh, they might give away some belongings. They might, um, you know, seem all of a sudden so much better uh, before things turn around really quickly. So I think that really speaks to the importance of paying attention uh, to these kinds of well-known warning signs. Mark, what do you uh, what do you make of this study? So five years, 2016 to 21. So three of the years were pre-COVID, and then 20 and 21 were COVID years. But throughout, they saw that the graph just keeps going up, and the number of kids who appear at a hospital ER with suicidal ideation. I mean, context. Yeah. So you know. What this tells me and what other data has shown before is that during COVID itself, during the lockdown period, suicide rates actually seem to decline uh, initially, uh, that people were at home, that there was a, a sort of an inbuilt what's called means restriction. In other words, people didn't have access to the same kinds of places and things that they would uh, go to or use to end their lives. Uh, so there was a dip initially. Now that things are opening back up, we're really starting to get a sense of the, the real psychological damage uh, that not only the, the lockdowns had, had caused, and that was a trade-off that, that unfortunately um, was part of this, but that the virus itself uh, seems to be having on people's brains, uh, that there seems to be a, a, a psychological and a psychiatric difference on people's brains from contracting the virus. Um, so coming out of this now, we're really seeing the, the echoing uh, effects that it has had, uh, and, and the system just can't keep up. I mean, we see stories every day about how the healthcare system can't even keep up with the, the demand that was already there, yeah. let alone this new demand uh, mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're struggling That's with. That's really scary. You know, when we know that uh, the pediatric side of things is not immune with Pediatric pain medication is mm-hmm. is really in short supply in Canada. Mental health issues, we've talked about that for kids, huge. So um, oh, I have to take a break. When we come back, Mark, I want to ask you, and, and people will ask you this a thousand times, I'm sure. Let me give you this. This is the Kids Helpline, 1-800-668-6868. 1-800-668-6868. And the National Suicide Hotline is 833-456-4566, 833-456-4566. Mark, what are the chances that um, somebody listening to the program right now is identifying with what we've been talking about and seeing it in their own kids? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned some of the uh, stats there, Roy, and I think there's a very good chance uh, that some of your listeners are dealing with this because we know that uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death among uh, young people. Uh, but if you actually look at, uh, dig a little bit deeper into that data, it's the leading cause of non-accidental death. So it's outpacing um, uh, on most other of the of the conditions and causes uh, that we talk so much more about. More people die by suicide around the world than murder and war combined. But we talk about those things every day, and we still don't talk yet enough about suicide. So there's a good chance that us having this conversation is going to connect with somebody who really needs it. Wow. So is it, is it because we're, our society is so different in 2022? And let's say the preceding five or six years, because that's the sort of the window for that study. Is our society so different, or was this, do you think this was going on in previous generations, just not talked about? No, I think this is always, this problem has always been there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a good thing in many ways that we are talking more now than we used to before. The problem is, I think, uh, the, the sophistication of the conversation that we're having, uh, publicly anyway, is really not quite there yet, where we're telling people, if you're suicidal, go to the hospital. Yes, that's a good thing. People should continue to do that, but also recognize the reality of the fact that that's not enough. That when you asked me before the break what this study told me, that so many kids are going to the emergency room for suicidality, that tells me that our system is failing 
because that emergency room is going to keep that kid safe. Yes, they might discharge them with some planning, but that's not nearly enough. I think parents need to be taking a more proactive intervention to their kids uh, before it ever gets to that point. And do what? You need to be able to have these conversations about depression, about anxiety, about mental health, even about suicide. Talk directly with your kids about it. You're not going to give them the idea to do it. That's a myth. If they're thinking about it, then they're already uh, thinking about it, and it's better that you know uh, than if you don't. Then if they do endorse potential feelings of, uh, of suicidality, uh, you need to be able to connect them with ongoing care that isn't just a one-and-done emergency room visit. Connect them with a counselor. Connect them with a therapist. Connection to their community uh, is one of the key protective factors. Get them volunteering. Get them involved in something. Get them caring about something. Uh, and really build a whole wraparound um, system of recovery that isn't just emergency intervention. So looking forward to tomorrow and having a sense of self-worth. Absolutely. That's so key. And feeling, making sure that they feel needed, making sure that they feel loved. But so often as parents, I'm a parent of three myself now, uh, it's easy to assume that your kids know that you love them. Uh, don't assume that. Make sure that you spend time building that relationship as you would expect anybody to build a relationship with you too. These are the ties that bind our kids to this life. How did you, Mark, um, heal how did you, at 15 years of age, you tried to take your life. You had suicidal thoughts when you were 12. How did you heal? Who helped you? And, 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 and how have you managed? You know, it was, I've spent so much time reflecting on my recovery journey, and that was what um, a big part of what my book was for, that I didn't even realize that I was recovering until 10, 12 years into it at least, uh, when I actually looked back and realized how far that I came. So much of my recovery was accidental. But now that I look back and have gotten a little bit older, older, I realize the small little interventions along the way that people would uh, do for me, you know, not just the stranger who saved my life, but the people who would believe in me or reach out to me or ask me how I was doing. It didn't seem like a big deal in the moment, but it added up cumulatively over time to change my trajectory. So that's why I think we need to, in order to prevent suicide, we need to have a whole society approach and not just wait for heroes uh, to be saving our kids. We all have a role to play. And we need to take this very seriously, more seriously than we, uh, if I may say this, uh, more seriously than we appear to be taking it. These aren't just numbers. This is not just another study to be thrown into the corner and say, there you go, this happened over five years. Let's move on to the next one. Who's vaping? We can't do that. This is, this is literally life and death. Do you have, yeah. do, do you have confidence that it will be taken as seriously as it as it must be. I mean, I, I think I, I have to, right? Because this is my entire reason for living is to get people yeah. to take uh, these kinds of issues seriously. And look, you're right. This needs to be a sustained generational effort. It's not just a news story that this is a trend. And people want to avoid talking about matters of, of death. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. I get that for sure. But... You know, there's a growing community of us out there who aren't going away, uh, who are going to keep reminding people that uh, there are those of us out there who struggle uh, with these kinds of thoughts and feelings. Uh, and, and it concerns all of us that this is a public health issue bigger than any other. So, Mark, let's, um, let's say that we have some young people, one young person listening right now and has heard the whole conversation and is having those very thoughts that you had before you were 15. What do you say to that young person? I'd say the same thing to a young person as I would to just about anybody of any age, which is not to believe everything that you think in this moment. You know, our thoughts and our feelings are important. They're valid. We need to take them seriously. But they're data points. They're just flags. They tell us what we care about and maybe tell us what might be missing in our life. But we can't fall into the trap of clinging to these things as uh, absolute facts that you need to not be here, that you can't carry this weight anymore, that nobody loves you. Those are the lies that your depression tells you. That's your depression trying to win, uh, and you don't have to let it. So hang in there. Reach out uh, to people uh, who have potentially been there, too. There's a whole network of us out there 
and share your story. It doesn't matter if it makes other people uncomfortable. That's okay. That's their problem. Share your story, open up, and you could help somebody too. Yeah, it's really terrifying to think of children as young as five, as young as five, having suicidal thoughts. And then we look at this particular stat again. Teens are admitted to hospital for suicide. This is Canada. Teens are admitted to hospital for suicide attempts more than any other age group. Some accounts suggest as many as one quarter of all suicide attempt admissions are for teens. And that's not what they, they don't belong in the ER, right? I mean, as you, as you said, they'll get patched up, and that's what an ER does, but it's not the solution. No, it's not. And now I, I want to make sure that, that parents especially know that it is a part of the system that needs to exist, that if you're, if you're concerned and you don't know what else to do, then go there. Yeah. You know, nobody should avoid it. But we do need to appreciate that it's not the it's not what that system was designed for, okay. and the problem of suicide is so much deeper uh, and and needs to be taken so much more seriously than than just that one intervention. That needs to be a longer term follow up involved. Earlier this week, when the story broke about a missile impacting Poland, because that's how the story broke, a missile impacting Poland. And in that storyline was Russian missile. When I heard Russian missile impacting Poland, my immediate reaction was viscerally, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. Well, we know from developments now that most likely it was parts of an old Soviet missile the Ukrainians are using to try to shoot down the Russian missiles with which the Russians are destroying the Ukrainian infrastructure, power infrastructure. Peter Katik Adams is the director of the Defense and Global Security Institute. He lectured at the UK Defense Academy for 20 years, has worked in 58 countries, and was NATO historian in Bosnia in 96-97. He's been analyzing the Ukraine conflict since 2014 and has made several recent visits to Ukraine. Peter is also the author of Victory in the West, and it's a book about the last hundred days of World War II and includes Canadian contributions in the Netherlands. Peter, thank you for, for joining us. What was your immediate response when, when you first heard the headline? Well, I, I was surprised that this hadn't happened before. If you think of the amount of munitions that have been flying through the skies, um, and there are half a dozen countries that border Ukraine, um, all of which are NATO members. I was all but one are NATO members. I'm really surprised that this hadn't sort of leaked before. Um, and uh, the, the worry, of course, is that immediately people leap on this uh, and the whole thing escalates beyond control. And that's how wars begin. That's how big world wars have always begun. Mm-hmm. It did escalate. And it escalated very quickly. And President Zelensky of Ukraine was insistent that it was a a Russian missile, and certainly it was not difficult to believe that it could be a Russian missile, maybe fired from Belarus, who knows. But are you satisfied now that it was not a Russian missile, that it was in fact pieces of a, of a Ukrainian missile fired at the Russian munitions? Yeah, I'm, I'm almost certain that it was a, a, a an S-300, which is an old Russian kind of missile that, that they have been aiming um at uh, the Ukrainian infrastructure, but the Ukrainians have also been using them as anti-aircraft missiles, uh, and uh, a Russian missile, if you you remember on on Tuesday, there were over 100 that were aimed at Ukrainian infrastructure, Um, and one of them was uh, was intercepted successfully. The bits came down to ground, and of course, when you're intercepting up there in the sky, you can't predict where they're going to land. uh, and pieces fell in Poland, and, and the key fact here was not that uh, a uh, you know some kind of aerial munition had strayed over the border, but two people were killed. Yes, uh, we've already had strays over the border into Moldova um, earlier on in the campaign of a, a, a Russian missile, um, and we had we had what I'm talking to you from Croatia, and we had one in March, um, which was Russian a Russian drone, which actually strayed over the border into. Um, Croatia. It had flown all, all the way through Hungary um, and had landed. No one was killed. Mm-hmm. But it just shows you how you, you can't completely control these things. And the moment the, 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 you put more munitions into the sky, um, there's, there's no telling where they will land. What is NATO doing 
Peter, to uh, to war game well, perhaps. These, yeah, these events will have wargamed every possible um, sort of permutation. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it, this escalated only in terms of a war of words is that it, it, it's been expected for a long time that something like this would, would, would happen. Um, and so, you know, this is where you need um, cool heads, even if the heart is hot. Uh, and the first thing you need to do is, is ascertain actually just whose it is. And that isn't always easy to do. Um, but, but the brakes were put on any kind of uh, action, um, and it was pretty soon obvious that it wasn't a deliberate Russian act. But, I mean, who, whoever's part came to land in Poland and, and, and killed two poor Poles, it, it's still, you know, deep down, this wouldn't have happened had Russia not initiated the attack. Exactly. So let me come back to something you said and just maybe expand on it. And I don't want to turn this into a Hollywood movie scene, but what are the chances that an incident like this one, in the middle of a long weekend, with key decision makers maybe not in their seats, maybe a little difficult to to reach, what are the chances it could lead to the wrong decision being taken by one side or the other, and all Hades breaks loose? Well, I've been I've been lecturing about this since 2014. I, I sort of foresaw the way things might turn out. Uh, and of course, this is everybody's sort of worst nightmare. But NATO's got so many uh, sort of layers built in to anticipate this kind of thing. So there's there's never all the, the, the key decision makers uh, away. Um, you, you war game every possible permutation, and you pull out the plans from the safe and, and, and work your way through them. Um, so, I mean, it is, it, it's always a nightmare. Um, but this is also why we have a hotline, and we know that the Russians uh, have been talking to both um, uh, London uh, and uh, Washington, D.C., uh, on a sort of irregular basis. Um, and that hotline came in after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the sort of first similar thing in, in, in modern times. So there's always the ability to pick up the phone and say, you know, was this you or not? Because we don't, we really don't want things to go any further. So, I mean, my message has always been one of calm. We are not on the, the um, edge of nuclear catastrophe. We're not on the edge of World War III. Um, if we play it carefully and sensibly, uh, and, you know, actually the events of Tuesday night, Wednesday, was a textbook example of how these sort of things can be contained, because the worst nightmare is that this leaks over the border into another country and, and, as you say, things get carried away. Yeah, so what is your view, and what do you think NATO's view is, of the performance of the Russian military and keeping in mind that there's one man in charge at this point, and it's Putin, and how stable he is, God only knows. We all agree that the the, the Russian military um, has performed absolutely abysmally and seems to be reinforcing failure. Um, both in the, the casualties that they've inflicted on their own side, the, the huge quantities of hardware that they've lost um, in campaigning ever since February. Um, but there are large chunks of the Russian military that haven't been engaged at all. There's none of the strategic um, uh, missile forces. Um, there's uh, none of the modern aircraft really have, have uh, been over Ukraine. Um, their most modern tanks haven't deployed. Um, and there is more of the, the Russian military engaged in suppression of internal dissent with very good equipment than there is in Ukraine. And that's always been the way. So, so it, it's a tiny proportion of uniformed Russians equipped with modern weaponry that are actually in Ukraine. Um, but given that, they, they haven't performed very well. And the odd thing is that it, over this sort of span of time, we've got 265, nearly 270 days, you would have thought the system would have learned and self-corrected. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't happened. And that hasn't happened because the man at the top, Vladimir Putin, is just completely mistrusting his own generals. Uh, and that's where you get into a really difficult bunker mentality, which is exactly what he's got that Adolf Hitler had in 1945. So understanding, uh, your understanding of NATO, your, your years of experience with the organization, with the alliance, and, and your understanding of international politics, geopolitics, how do you see this this entire war, this conflict ending? It's completely and totally tied to one man's ambition, Vladimir Putin. He's not going to let go. So this will carry on for as long as he's in power, in my view. 
Um, and so that sort of puts in mind that that puts the onus on the Russians, whether it's interested parties, whether it's elites, whether it's oligarchs, whether it's um, the military or some other um, part of the um, the Russian hierarchy to intervene and and and, and do something. Um, Ukraine just has to hold on, um, and in order for Ukraine to hold on. That means Western support. So we have to carry on supporting and probably up the ante. More missiles, more ammunition, um, more moral support. We can't let that go. This is a very interesting, very interesting poll that was done by the Association for Canadian Studies and conducted by Leger. On Canadians' reaction, I wonder how many people really are aware that the Trudeau government will increase annual immigration levels to 500,000 by 2025. And the government says they have to do that because there are a million jobs available in Canada and somebody has to fill them and they're not being filled and there are skilled people internationally and so immigration levels have to be raised, says the government, to 500,000 a year by 2025. This past year it was just over 400,000, I think 405. Now, and I'm not going to get into the details. Our guest will do that. But I found this really interesting. 75% of people who responded to the poll are very or somewhat concerned that the plan to raise the immigration numbers to half a million a year will cause excessive demand on housing, health care, and social services. As we said last hour when I promoted our conversation with Jack Jadwab. Those three factors of Canadian life are under tremendous stress. Our healthcare system is a chaotic mess. It's costing lives. It's costing lives. Housing is a crisis and social services, well, not far behind. Now, I understand the Quebecers are more open to increases in immigration than the rest of Canada. And Montreal, particularly non-Francophones, much more open to immigration increases then uh, the residents of Toronto and Vancouver. Jack Jedwab is the president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Jack, thank you uh, for coming on. Do you want to start with the national numbers, or do you want to start with some of the more um, urban numbers that you put you, that you came up with? Where do, where do we start? Um, let's start with the national numbers. Okay, actually, Roy, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Roy. And always good to speak with you. Uh, Thank you. So on the national numbers, basically, uh, the question was first put to respondents is about levels and how they feel about uh, whether we're admitting too many immigrants, uh, the right number, or uh, not enough. And uh, by and large, uh, what we see is that about 48% of Canadians think that uh, we're admitting too many immigrants. That's without... Uh, uh, that's with the projections, right? Because uh, we have two questions. One question... Uh, simply asks whether there are too many immigrants being admitted without the numbers, and then we advise people what the numbers are and ask the question again. So without the numbers, uh, it's uh, about 42% of Canadians that think there are too many, 43 think it's the right number, and about 14 think there's too few. So it's still it's not a majority that feel there are too many, but it's still a sig very significant minority relative to previous uh, surveys uh, that ask the same question. And then when we share the numbers, which you mentioned in your uh, opening remarks, uh, uh, it jumps up by about uh, six points. So nearly half the population thinks there are too many when they hear the number 500,000 in 2025, and, and then it sort of split uh, the, uh, in the, the other way in terms of whether people think there are uh, uh, not enough or uh, the right number, that's about 35%, another 15 don't know. So there are concerns that Canadians are expressing about these projections and the federal government uh, certainly and the provinces and, and cities uh, need to address those concerns as we go forward because, as I think you also pointed out, uh, uh, there are a lot of jobs to fill and industry yeah. is putting a considerable degree of pressure on the government uh, because of the labor market needs to raise those numbers because they're uh, desperately looking, in, at least in some sectors, for people to fill those jobs. Mm -hmm. It's not a concern to be dismissed that uh, Canadians are concerned about health care, that they're concerned about social services, that they're concerned about housing, all of those three factors, and they encompass a lot of you know, our daily lives. Uh, they are heavily impacted by the um, inflation, by interest rates climbing, the energy crisis, just the global uncertainty now. So that's part of the equation. How much of a role, though, does it play overall, do you think? 
Yeah, I think it plays an important role. I'm a little less inclined to be concerned, even though I understand the way some people may be thinking about this uh, in terms of the access to health and social services, because the health and social services situation, on the one hand, uh, does need more people. To the extent to which a lot of the people coming here in terms of our process that is selective for a significant percentage of those people coming here identifies people can help us in terms of the health and social service needs. Uh, that's another thing to factor into an evaluation of whether there are going to be increased challenges associated with uh, migration. And also, you know, the migrants very often, since they're very employable, contribute to the tax base that's needed to support that health and social uh, services system. The housing issue, on the other hand, is one that really, I think, is uh, uh, a really crucial area that we need to think about, particularly in larger cities where there's a significant housing shortage there, as you mentioned, rising prices for housing, uh, so that a number of the refugees that have come here, in particular from Afghanistan, are finding themselves in hotels for extended periods of time, yeah. uh, which is not a solution. So we need to really do some thinking. And as much as the federal government projects the numbers, the you know these housing issues are not federal jurisdiction. They're, you know, at least not in general uh, uh, very partially, their provincial and, and municipal jurisdictions. So yeah. it needs to be a concerted effort to really address these housing Jack, issues right now. Jack, wh- wh- how much of it has to do with the number? Uh, we used to be 300,000 a year was the rough number for immigrants. Mm-hmm. And that number was fairly static for quite a few years. So then we go to 400,000 and that is 500,000 by 2025. How much, I'm not saying people are racist at all. I'm just saying people might think, given where we are, given what the, the shape the country's in, the questions we have, the issues we're facing, the challenges we face, can we absorb another 500,000 newcomers in the country? Is that a factor in the answers, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about absorptive capacity, and, and but it's hard to frame that concept in numeric terms. Because people get, people are afraid to speak their minds. Many people are afraid to speak their minds on something like that because they'll say, well, I'm going to get be accused of being a racist when, in fact, many of them, most of them, vast majority, I would hope, are anything but. They're just asking questions. Yeah, I think it's legitimate to ask questions, and certainly we need to sort of better you know, inform the population about how we're going to address some of these concerns. Yeah. Uh, the housing one most certainly needs to be addressed. Uh, I think in terms of the economic challenges, because there are many sort of ways of understanding uh, our capacity and our ability to uh, welcome and integrate newcomers. Uh, right now, industry is telling us pretty widely that there's a lot of jobs to fill. There are people retiring, there are transitions, and they're looking to recruit talent and recruit people for a lot of these positions. Uh, so it, that's also a legitimate point of view, obviously, from industry, but we need to think about this thing on the whole and mm-hmm. what, it, what it means and how we best adjust. Uh, but, it is, but, it's still a, but it's still a societal issue, isn't it? Because you, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the pages in the report that I have, non-Francophones are far more open to immigrant increases than are Montreal Francophones. So what does that say? Yeah, in Quebec, that's the case. And it's interesting because I thought it was somewhat paradoxical that Quebecers were more open to immigration than other Canadians, independent of that difference between francophones and non-francophones. But again, in this particular questionnaire, we don't put the language piece in the mix. So there's no, very often in these types of polls around immigration in Quebec, they'll say, given the situation of the French language, do you think we're admitting too many immigrants, not enough immigrants? Once you put that piece in the equation, the, the percentage in terms of the responses reflects more insecurity on the part of Frank. Yeah, Montrealers much, more op- Montrealers much more open to immigration increases than folks uh, in Toronto and Vancouver? Toronto and Vancouver and the people in Vancouver, independent of whether they're Frank. That surprised you? Which is interesting. I was a bit surprised by it, but again, you've, you've withdrawn the language uh, piece from the equation in this by not putting that into the question, you're putting yeah. pieces around. By now, by Jack, by, by, by right. now we should have had to resolve this language issue. We've had decades, centuries. Right. Right. But I mean, that's a very sort of existential issue for a lot of people. Yeah, I understand. So it's going to be hard to resolve that and politicians yeah. will, you know, step in to see where they can profit from those insecurities as yeah. well. So, you know, but what I thought was interesting is that uh, in Montreal and Quebec, and you, you've lived in Quebec for many years, or yes, so, right? So uh, you've got a very ambiguous message that politicians are delivering. On the one hand, they're saying Quebec needs immigrants. They've repeated that many, many times, especially you know, industry, leaders of industry in Quebec. And on the other hand, they're describing immigrants as a threat to the French language. So you've got that mixed message. And, and there's a bit of that mix in Toronto-Vancouver. There's some of that mixed message, too. On the one hand, you're seeing industry saying, you know, we need 
we need these people to fill these jobs. And on the other hand, uh, people are concerned about the housing situation and access to services. And certainly, uh, in terms of the housing situation, people who are making those points are certainly not uh, uh, acting in a discriminatory fashion in terms of their you know, uh, concerns about that. There's a serious housing crisis here and elsewhere. Two quick questions for you uh, to wrap up. Do demographics and gender breakdowns enter the picture here? Well, demographics are important. Quebec demographics are very important. We've got an aging population, and that's true for the rest of the country. It's sort of it's a bit uneven, but uh, immigration is the single factor in terms of addressing our demographic challenge and the aging of the population. In fact, in ter- according to StatCan's census release, it's the single thing driving labor force growth in Canada right now because of the aging of the population. Uh, it's it's uh, the labor force growth comprises immigrants to a very very significant degree. And what's the takeaway from this poll? Well, I think the takeaway is that there are, you know, that clearly Canada does need immigrants from an economic standpoint, but clearly in terms of some of the social issues that, you know, arise from immigration, uh, there are things that need to be paid attention to more seriously, and we need more collaboration between each level of government in addressing some of the concerns. So if if uh, you're the government and I'm the opposition party, just hypothetically, or flip it, whichever we want to do it. If we see these numbers, see this information from the Association for Canadian Studies, poll on Canadians' reaction to the uh, government raising the immigration level to half a million in just two years, um, how do you play it? Does the government, is this an issue for Trudeau or is it an issue for Polyev or should they just leave it alone? I'm not sure it's an issue that will get a lot of traction for them. And, I, you know, when you look back at the Conservatives uh, under Stephen Harper, they were pretty good about uh, raising immigration levels uh, at that particular juncture as well when you know, when our economy uh, demanded more people to fill jobs. And it depends on your vision of the country. So I don't know if there's any traction on that. We're not like a lot of these European countries that have these really deep existential debates about immigration and face identity crises. Uh, I don't know that that's the issue here. In Quebec, to, on some level, it's an issue, but I think, by and large, you know, the need for uh, immigrants to meet those job requirements and help us with our labor market needs seems to probably trump some of the other concerns, but we'll have to see how they play it. Yeah, and I do think the government is going to have to substantially satisfy, looking at this number, 70% are concerned, the government's going to have to substantially satisfy this concern of Canadians, or it does become an election issue potentially. Yeah, and I don't think we're immune to a backlash, and I think that's what the poll, if you're asking me about the takeaway as you did yeah. before, I don't think that you know we're uh, we can escape a backlash. There's been backlash uh, around the world and other immigrant receiving places, and so uh, we're not immune to that, and we need to be sure we're taking the right measures and providing the right supports and explaining to Canadians more thoughtfully uh, why this is important to us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.